In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. But it didn't stay good. Adam and Eve traded perfect fellowship with God in exchange for a false promise, and in doing so, they tore down the good garden. Humanity continued to trade good for bad, brother for blood, birthright for a bowl of stew, and yet, as humanity descended, God was still working. In the ashes of a torn down garden, in a broken family, the Lord was planting the seeds of redemption. Well, good morning to each of you. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord, and we are going to dive right into Scripture. We've got a lot to read today, and so I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31, and we're also going to be in Romans chapter 5 at the end. So Genesis chapter 31, we're going to do the entire part, although in three sections, and then we will also look at Romans chapter 5. And so if you need a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one. We also utilize the YouVersion Bible app. And you can go under there into the events tab, find LAFC, and you'll see all the scriptures we'll be using this morning. So my name is Tony. If you're new here, uh, I'm pastor here at LAFC, and we are in the midst of a series out of the book of Genesis. The connection to Genesis, why this is so relevant to today, is that if you take any story and simply open to the middle of the book and you start reading, you're gonna be feeling like I have zero context. And for a lot of people, when they hear about Jesus Christ dying on a cross, uh, by, sent by God to do that, and then to come alive on the third day, and then to send people out to talk about him, that's gonna make no sense to you whatsoever unless you have context, unless you understand the heart of God behind that, understand the point of Jesus being born of a virgin and then living a life that is sinless, and then dying on a cross as the perfect land, raising again that there might be life. That just won't make sense to you unless we start at the beginning. And so we've been in Genesis since the fall, and, uh, and we're now at a, at a part in Genesis where we're talking about Jacob. So there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at this point in the story, Jacob has since uh, left his relationship that was very broken with Esau. Uh, they, they were twins. Uh, one was born ahead of the other, uh, as in Esau was the older, but Jacob is, a, is given by God as the one that's going to have the right to being as the one who will be the heir. This is not received well by Esau, and the way that Jacob goes about receiving the blessing, receiving the birthright, quite frankly, is not very constructive. In fact, it's very destructive and deceptive. And uh, in fact, you will find that as you study the like of Jacob, he is not exactly a life that you would want to aspire to live like. He was very much one that was about getting, you know, the gain for himself and being willing to deceive to get there. And so you know that pretty much, as we learned last week, that everything was kind of uh, at this pace of Jacob knows about God, but Jacob does not know God. And there is a difference. I mean, Abraham has these major encounters with God and it shapes his life. It causes a journey. It leads to some uh, amazing interventions by God. And Jacob knows those stories. 
He also knows the story from his father Isaac about the moment where his grandfather Abraham was about ready to sacrifice Isaac on an altar and, and then to see God intervene. And so Isaac has this amazing God moment that was riddled with fear, but then absolute delight as God provides a ram. These stories are known by Jacob and, and they are certainly affecting him, but he himself has not had that encounter with God. And so he knows about the God of his father, the God of his grandfather, but that personal connection did not happen until he has this falling out with Esau that comes to a place where Esau is ready to kill him. And so Isaac sends him away for two reasons. First, to go find a bride that would be of the family tree. And so he sends him back to the land where Abraham came from and where Isaac found his wife. And, and then also the expedience of it was, well, your brother's gonna kill you, so do it quickly. And, and so he, he flies quickly across the northern parts of Israel and into the Padam Aram Aram area, and he encounters his mother's brother, Laban. Laban has a lot of similarities to Jacob. As Jacob was this very uh, confident uh, person that would assert to get what he might see as something he wants, he's even willing to deceive to get there. If that was what Jacob was known for, Laban could take all those skill sets and say, but I have them more to the full. Laban was an even stronger gifted man when it comes to deception and manipulation and control. And so as Jacob has now left his brother out of fear for his life because of the many uh, ways that he undermined Esau. He's now gonna suffer at the hands of a father-in-law, currently uncle, but soon to be father-in-law that has the same qualities Jacob has. But, all, but I would say more to the full. So now where we're gonna be in, Ge in Genesis chapter 31 is that 20 years have gone by in this relationship between Jacob and Laban. But over those 20 years, some pretty significant things happen. So the first thing that happens is that when Jacob shows up, meets Laban, he, he has already met Laban's daughter, Rachel. He falls in love with Rachel, wants to marry Rachel. Laban says, as an opportunist, he's like, well, if you work for me for seven years, then you can have Rachel. So seven years he works, then he is given his bride for the night, only to discover by morning that it wasn't Rachel, it was her sister Leah. Of course, Jacob felt very deceived and, and, and was harmed and wronged, so he goes back to Laban and says, what have you done? And he goes, I was supposed to marry Rachel. And then Laban claims, well, tradition says I can't give away my younger daughter ahead of the older, so I gave you my older daughter. But if you work for me another seven years, I will give you Rachel. And this is where we need to correct the storylines in our minds. So Jacob worked for seven years and then received Leah. He now is under contract to work another seven years to receive Rachel. But what happens actually is that Rachel is given up front. So he's with Leah one weekend and he marries Rachel the next weekend. So he marries two sisters in a week's time. Anybody see some problems with that? Can you see that there's going to likely be some inner turmoil in the family in time? 
Yes. And so that indeed happens. There's issues that happen between Leah and Rachel. There's definitely jealousy that comes up. But there is, continues to be primarily a brokenness developing between Jacob and Laban. Laban keeps taking advantage of Jacob. And Jacob, quite frankly, does pretty well initially. But then over time, for self-defense, starts becoming deceptive and falls back to some of his old patterns. 20 years go by, and this is the way the relationship has gone. It continues to be built off deception, manipulation, control, and harm. But as time has gone on, the blessing of God around Jacob and his family as it's growing becomes evident, and it's coming at the cost of Laban's family. And so Laban's getting you know, he, he's being blessed, but not near like what Jacob's being blessed. And the brothers-in-law to Jacob start becoming, hey, he's getting all our wealth. And they're ready to pounce and, and take over Jacob and his family. And Laban is starting to get a little cranky and his mood is changing. All that leads to a particular moment in time, which we're gonna read here, where Jacob realizes this is so broken and it's going so poorly that if I don't leave now, I'm going to die. So that's where we'll pick it up in Genesis chapter 31, verse one. It says, Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah uh, to come out to the fields where those flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages 10 times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he had said the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In the breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats were mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I've seen that all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Then Rachel and Leah replied, do, you still have, do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what he has paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Padan Aram. 
to to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, crossed the Euphrates River, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. Let me stop there. And let me personalize the story. Have you, and I'm talking to you here in this room, have you had a relationship with someone that was so fractured that where the layers of hurt on both sides of the relationship are so complicated that it feels like there is no hope for peace, let alone reconciliation? Ever been there? Where it's so broken that there just doesn't seem any possible path towards peace or the more greater thing, reconciliation. Now, why do I say it like that? Because peace is a good thing, right? Well, peace often has to come ahead of reconciliation because reconciliation by its sheer uh, definition requires an agreement that the fa- on the facts and a commitment to a fully restored relationship. A fully restored relationship is a process if there's been significant brokenness. So how do you deal with a relationship that, where the wounds run deep and the hurt is very easy to discover? How do you navigate that knowing that God's a God of reconciliation and God is a God of peace? So you have a severely broken relationship between a father-in-law and a son-in-law. And a brother to brother-in-laws and daughters to father and to brothers. I mean, you've got a dysfunctional family situation here that it's hard to pick at like what's the ultimate causes because the wounds have been going on for 20 years. Now, when I imagine some of the hurt here in this room, of all the things that might have led to some of these severely broken relationships that might be in your mind right now as I'm speaking, there is a very common path that we all take in regards and response to such broken relationships. And a very human path is spoken of here. This is what I love about scripture, that the heroes of the scriptures are human beings that are seen as flawed, not perfect. There are no perfect people in scripture except for Jesus and there's no perfect people here in this room as much as you'd like to convince yourself. So when you look at this, you see a very human projection. So let's look at this. When you look at the progression of of Jacob, you see that, that there's hurt within this. He feels the rejection of his father-in-law. He feels oppressed by his father-in-law. He feels like his father-in-law has oppressed him in such a way through embezzlement, stealing, dishonesty, and working against him. Always changing the grounds of communication and the agreements of work between them. There's hurt that comes in that, especially when you talk about 20 years of that. When you have 20 years of a relationship where it's been somebody feeling taken advantage of by the other, and then of course, you're gonna respond very much at a human measure, and you see that if you go back in the, in the chapters before, Jacob responds, and it's not all good. 
He responds and he deceives back. He takes, he ta- makes some of these things happen for his betterment. But the relationship has become hopeless. There is nothing that Jacob sees in regards to the future of staying near Laban and being able to work for Laban or work with Laban. There is no hope within that relationship. It is seemingly forever fractured. And then when you start seeing that the rest of those who are related to Laban are starting to look at you with greed and envy and jealousy, and you know that by culture, that when you have a threat within a household, you take the threat out. Fear is growing inside of Jacob. He's starting to wonder if with, while his clan is singular and it's, and it's a very small group, whereas there are many sons of Laban and all their families that all they have to do is decide Jacob's done and he's done. So fear has definitely come in. So you have hurt, hopelessness, fear, which leads to the next thing is run. Run, because you don't feel safe. You wanna escape the situation, so you take flight. Now, you might think, well, why would he think that this would work? Well, keep in mind why he isn't put on Aram. Who was he running from? Esau. Esau wanted to kill him, and that was 20 years ago, and so he has effectively been able to stay alive for 20 years. And so this flight mechanism seems to have been working, or so it seems. Because what you see is some of the patterns and the problems have repeated themselves. Well, let's continue on. So let's look at verse 22 and following. So now he's running. And so on the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Verse 23, taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the, in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him, and Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You have deceived me, and you have carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. But last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you have longed to return to your father's household. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone who has taken your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of your relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me. And if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched throughout everything in the tent, but found nothing. 
Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my Lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I am having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime, he asked Laban. Have I wronged you that you hunt me down? Now that you have searched through all my goods and have found that, that, found that belongs to you and your household, put it here in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of us. Okay, so what you see here is continued hurt coming to, to the top. So you have Jacob leaving without telling. Now God told Jacob to leave, but he didn't tell him to deceive Laban. That was done on his own. So you now have Laban that is furious that he didn't get to say goodbye to his family. And he is ready, quite frankly, to pounce on them and to kill them. They are camped in the same valley across from each other. So over that nighttime, those with Jacob are in fear of their lives. And then Laban shows up, gives his judgment as to why he is furious. And then Jacob responds with, if you can find anything, then whoever has stolen it, you can kill. Now, you see that Rachel joins into the deception category. And what she uses for deception is not worth my time here speaking about. It's a little bit awkward if you get what I'm saying. So in this, she uses some kind of deception to say why she can't get up. She goes forward with this, and so the gods are not found. So deception happens again. This is filling the household. The two are at an impasse for sure. And there is about ready for a war to break out because the brothers-in-law of Jacob are ready to take over. They're ready to take everything for themselves. Laban is angry. He is ready to also take them out. And if it wasn't for God coming and intervening, this would have been a battle, not a discussion. So what do we learn from this in this part, part of chapter 31? Well, it is this. You cannot outrun broken relationships. You will have to reckon with them. You see, as much as we try to leave a situation that is harming you, the things that have been sown within you because of that broken relationship goes with you. And so while you might initially, as you're running away from the problem of those relationships, you might initially feel peace because you're not in the presence of that person or that situation, that peace will be fleeting. Because what you'll discover is whatever created the brokenness between you and another individual or you and other people is still within you. The problems, the character flaws stayed with Jacob. He left Esau thinking that I can leave my problems behind only to discover that the problems repeated themselves. And now he has a broken relationship with more family. And this one also is ready to kill him. I mean, to say that Jacob knows how to build relationships that end in peace is not a good characterization of him. He leads his relationships in such a way where they're ready to take him out. So his problems stayed with him. They were undealt with. And I will say that even if you do your best to not repeat mistakes, just doing relationships at all will provoke 
the former issues in your life. It just does. That if you have a propensity towards certain flaws in your character that you have not dealt with, to think that you can just leave them behind and not repeat them when you haven't worked them out between you and God and perhaps between you and other people, you are lying to yourself. Your problems will go with you. So then that leads you to the next question, I would assume. If you can't outrun a broken relationship or outrun the harm that that has done, how do you at least come to some kind of peace regarding relational brokenness? How can you get there? If reconciling is not possible, again, reconciling that coming to full grips where a fully restored relationship where you can actually be in life together, partner together again. If you're looking at it and saying, there is no way this relationship can ever go back to reconciliation. How can you even make peace of it that it doesn't keep repeating and harming you and other people? I think we need to keep reading in the scriptures here and starting in verse 38. So now they're encountered. They're speaking to each other. And so in verse 38, it says, I have been with you, Jacob speaking, I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore, I bore the loss to myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you for 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would have surely sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. And last night he rebuked you. Laban answered Jacob, the women are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Come, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And he said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha and Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it is called Galid. It will also then be called Mizpah or a watchtower because it said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, here is the heap and here is the pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. 
May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. Okay, so they were gathered in a valley. You have to understand the moment. They're gathered in a valley. There are likely weapons in hand. How's this gonna go? Are we gonna fight? And somebody's going to be on the losing end of this? Or is there gonna be some kind of truce made? So what happens here that I would say is the first step and acknowledge and being able to come to a place of peace in an extremely complicated situation, I would suggest that you need to acknowledge the impasse. Both men spoke to the issues that bothered them. Both of them were hurt. Both of them felt like they had justice on their side. Both of them were ready to defend themselves. You see, the impasse means that they looked and saw this is not going to end well. Do we call it a truce and say enough blood has happened between us, enough harm has happened between us that we can actually call a truce in this moment? When I look back over history in particular, I'm very uh, interested in all the things that happened after the World War II. And, the, and this whole war had, had involved so many nations that now all of a sudden so much blood has been spilt and clearly there was a winner, but it could still keep going on and more blood spilt. But somebody had to say, can we call a truce? Can we end the conflict? Can we stop the bleeding? And so a document was signed that stopped the war in Europe and then eventually a document was signed that stopped the war in the Pacific. And all that did was bring peace to a very long war. But it did not make friends. It did not reconcile right away. Although over time, you can see how nations that were at war against each other in Europe are now allies. And you can see that some of the allies in World War II are now enemies. But I will say, until you lay down the weapons and until truce is called, you will never see reconciliation. Something has to happen. And so you have to acknowledge the impasse. And then what I would say secondly is you propose a covenant. You propose an agreement. You, just, you state a desired course. You, you build something. You write something that says, we're done. We're not gonna harm each other. So you propose it. And it takes courage to go there to be willing to say this. And so Laban goes first, but then it's Jacob who builds the heap and the pillar, along with invitation to the others. And you see in this, that Laban says, I built this. So already there's, there's a little bit of tension going on, but in the end of the day, Laban's the one that says, let this heap say to people, that we will not cross this line and harm the other. 
So you build a heap that then testifies. And that's the third phase. So you have to go first and propose something. Can we find peace? And then you build something. You state something. You write something that says, we are going to stop harming each other. Because it's one thing, what I've learned about relationships is that, let's say two factions actually agree to some form of peace. What often is, continues on in that moment is people that were loyal to one side or the other don't get the message and they continue the friction. They continue the battle. And so what I love about this moment is that a covenant's proposed and then they do something to say, here it is publicly, so that they can all stop warring. It's a testimony to many people, not just between the two that are at war with each other. So you build a heap that testifies, not only to the two, but to those who are loyal to them. And then what you see is that part of this sacrificial moment, because they it says they made sacrifices as an altar right there by that heap, and then they ate. One uh, historian and commentarian named Golden Gay says this. He says, this is a statement to say that because they ate next to the heap, it's to say that they acknowledge that God did something here and they're grateful for it. And it's a blessing and an answer to prayer. You see, I'm confident that overnight, Jacob's clan, which was the smaller of the two clans in that valley, were in fear for their lives and they wondered if they would live the next day. So there was lots of prayer, like, God, are you with us? God, are you with us? God, will you spare us? And then when this moment happens where an actual peace is being made, a heap is being built, where they're not going to harm each other, to then eat next to it as a part of a sacrificial moment is to say, God, you have answered our prayers. This is a blessing and then this meal, which very specifically you'll see at the end of this chapter, it says that, that Jacob made sure that all the family came and ate together because they needed to embrace, all of them needed to embrace the new state of the relationship. That it's no longer war, but it's peace. Now keep in mind, they're not reconciled. They have not decided that we're gonna work together again, that all things are agreed upon and that we can agree who, what the heirs were. No, they had just stated, there's no apology yet at all. They just acknowledge we need peace. So what I've discovered in this is that in our severely broken relationships, which each of us deal with, is that sometimes there is no way to truly figure out how to reconcile. The wounds are so complicated, the time has gone on, and it's so convoluted that to figure out how to make it all right, where everybody's in agreement, this is the truth, and this is how we can move forward, and this is how we can fully partner together again in a complete and whole relationship. At this sitting, maybe right now you're thinking, impossible. And you're right, given the current context. But what if, what if you can come to peace and you call a truce and you agree to not harm each other? I've been able to experience this a little bit more personally in the last 13 months. 
as part of a journey that we've taken as a church with our former pastor, Doug Winnie. To mention him on this morning, I can only do so in confidence because of the peace we've made with each other. For 25 years, he preached faithfully in this church. He led and cared for his family faithfully. Unfortunately, relational breakdowns happen between Doug and the leadership of this church, of which there's many layers that's hard to understand. It led to an unfortunate end. But I can tell you today that 13 months ago, we made peace with our brother. And I will tell you, the while the wounds between him and our church were not personal to me because they preceded me. I felt the brokenness being a part of this family as this is my church, my church family. And I knew a lot of the pain for those of you that were around 12 years ago and experienced much of that that happened at that time. You know very personally some of the pain experienced. And it's hard to understand where it all began and who's at fault All I know is that God is pleased with where we're at now. I can tell you that in the 13 months since we made peace directly between our elders and Pastor Doug, that I've had the pleasure of being in his home twice in the past year breaking bread with him. Two weeks ago was the last time I did this. And I can tell you that he's been a blessing to me. Some of you might be able to say that that's a miracle in itself to say that my predecessor has been a blessing to me. And I can say that with utmost confidence. And I can tell you that by peace, reconciliation may come in time where there can be a full restoration of the relationship. But for now, we're building trust We're building relationship once again. And I can say, God is honored. And I can tell you that that relationship is an example of many relationships where it seems impossible that God could ever bring reconciliation. And I will tell you, maybe you've got your eyes too much on the end and you need to get your eyes on what can happen now. Peace is something that could be made if you're willing to humble yourself and choose to say, I recognize the impasse. I recognize that we cannot reconcile all the matters, but I desire more than anything for God to be honored and for there to be peace between us where we no longer harm each other. I wanna tell you that we have a God that gave that very example, and that's where I wanna conclude in Romans chapter five. Because I think there is some metaphor in this that can be tied to something later that God literally does the same thing and he builds a heap. Where we were at war with God in our rebellion towards him where we're like, God, you're not in control of my life, I am. Where we choose to do things our way, not God's way. Or we choose to think we actually know better than God than God does. And so we think that his word is too restrictive. And so we do think our heart is naturally rebellious and at war with God. But God 
builds the heap. Look at Romans chapter five, verses one to 11, when it says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, though him, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that the sufferings, uh, the sufferings produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we, while we were God's enemies, he, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do not let it be lost upon us. If you are in Christ now, Previous to Christ, you are an enemy of God. You are at war with him, as this text says. You are his enemy. And yet, while you were still in that, that animosic state where you were anti-God, God sent his son Jesus to die for you by making peace where it was not thought possible. We were incapable of it. We could not have built that heap. But you know what God did? He built a pile of stones, all right, but the pillar was in the shape of a cross. That cross stands as a testament to God's love, his grace, and his mercy. That we who are enemies of him would be reconciled through his work, his heap. And then what does he do? He invites us to his table because he wants a new normal. He wants to establish a new direction for the relationship where there's communion with him and making peace with each other. I do not think it's just circumstantial that the relationship between Jacob and Laban in this moment reflects the cross. Because I believe the character of God shows up over and over and over again. So we now have been brought to the cross and we have also been brought to a table. You see, on the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, he set a table out where they were going to be participating in the Passover meal. But this was not gonna be any normal Passover meal. There was going to be some things done that night that would forever change the world. Jesus brought them to a place where peace could finally happen between them and God. And he invited them to the table to commune so that we would never forget our communion with God is through the heap of God that he built through the cross. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts.
so Jesus, I acknowledge that we were enemies of you. We didn't propose some kind of peace offering to you. You proposed to us. You provided the heap and you stood on it, being nailed to a cross. And by it, peace could be made. And not only peace, a full reconciliation to God. That which seemed impossible is now made possible. Jesus, you did it by your own death and resurrection. You paid in full. So we thank you. As a way to prepare our hearts, we're going to sing a song called Jesus Paid It All. Let it come from our, the depth of our being as we say these words because we recognize we've been brought to a table that we didn't make, but that God laid out before us so that we can be reconciled to him.
washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. So in the same way that Jacob invited everyone to the table so that they would know where this came from. So all of you who call on Jesus as Lord and Savior are invited to this table. If you fail to get a cup on your way in the door, simply put your hands up now and our ushers will be glad to provide you one so you can partake with us. So on that night, the night before the heap would be built, Jesus took some bread and he broke it and he handed it to those at the table and said, this is my body, which is for you. And then sometime later, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of a new covenant, my blood, which is for you as well. For as often as you drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's now think upon these thoughts of his body and his blood before we partake. his body, which is for you. Let's take together. And in the same way that those who ate at that table with Jacob and Laban being grateful that they were not gonna have to shed blood, we too can be thankful while at this table that Jesus shed his blood so that we didn't have to. Let's take and drink of this cup together. Thank you, Jesus. You accomplished what none of us could. This was an answer to centuries of prayer. And now we stand and sit here with grateful hearts. We give you glory and honor, not ourselves. Thank you, Jesus. Would you stand, please? Let's declare praise the one who's paid our debt. Sing, oh, praise the one. And oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt
one more time. Jesus paid it all. Cause Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it. So tonight, well, actually this afternoon at 4.30, we're gonna have what we call Celebrate God. We do this annually. where we, we believe the rhythm of the church as we look into a new year that we really need to be grateful as we go forward, looking back and acknowledging what God has done. And so today at 4.30, we're gonna have a time of worship, a time of gratitude, and a time of fellowship. We're literally gonna to eat together. And I think it's very appropriate after today's message that we operate in fellowship where there is peace. And I believe we do so together when we break bread, we pray together, we sing together, and we acknowledge God together. Today, when we do that, we're gonna have tables in this room. And what we would ask is that you bring an hors d'oeuvre to sit at your table. Uh, so tables are of about eight people. So come and share an hors d'oeuvre with those eight. And then you can feel free to go and steal from other tables as you wish. With that being said, it's gonna be a special time. It's from 4.30 to 6. And I hope you will join us. But let me conclude this service by pointing out the fact that because we've experienced reconciliation with God, that we now have an example and we've experienced something impossible that can then make things possible in our broken relationships around us. Second Corinthians five says this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making this appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for those of us that are in Christ, we have been made, brought into a peace relationship with God because of the work of Jesus. And because of his work, we then are reconciled to God, fully whole and able to be together. And then because we've experienced that, we get to be ambassadors of that. We get to be messengers of that kind of reconciliation. And in some of the broken situations you're in, this might begin, this ministry of reconciliation, by beginning with peace. Can you bring peace to a relationship in hopes that God can bring about the miracle of reconciliation? Because we know this, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. 
So if you'd like to pray with someone, we'll have people in the encounter room that'll be glad to engage you and to pray with you and perhaps pray into a situation where there's incredible discord. But may we be ministers of reconciliation and start with trusting the Prince of Peace to help us bring peace to so many broken situations. Amen? God be with you as ministers of such a message. You're dismissed.